Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lori Clark Show. This episode of my podcast is brought to you with the help of ZoomUs, a video and audio conferencing interface. It's important to know that I'm in no way sponsored by Zoom. I just want to tell you how much I love it. It is very reliable, easy to use, and provides excellent audio and video files that my team and I produce to share the power of story with you. Another non-sponsored, couldn't do without, but just have to tell you how good it is, is Squarespace. When they say it is the all-in-one platform, it really is true. I go into the back end of my website multiple times a day, adjust things, post podcast, add links, and look at our show's analytics, which all sync across my devices. And when I need an image, Squarespace provides an excellent resource that's powered by Unsplash. Now for my most favorite feature, the Squarespace app. Um, Being a working mom, there never seems to be enough time in my day. So when my daughter's in ballet, I sit in my car and upload, post, and manage everything on my website from the app. It's really cool and seamless. Squarespace is really, really simple and very dedicated to helping me create a brand of excellence. So with that, big shout out to Zoom, Squarespace, and Unsplash. Thank you for helping me tell people's stories. With that said, let's move on to the best part about today, the show. Please allow me to welcome my next guest on The Lori Clark Show. Trish Wagner is a high school teacher of 32 years, mother of three young adults who teaches and studies emotional literacy, understanding the psychology of how we can learn through recognizing our emotions by developing awareness through mindfulness and use emotion to bring forward our best selves in all aspects of how we love, live, teach, and parent. Everyone, I would like to welcome you and introduce you to Miss Trish Wagner. Trish, you are going to talk to us about nurturing emotional courage today. And I, I have to say to you, I, like I said to you earlier on, I've, I'm in six hours deep into this research. I can't get enough. Um, something's happened. Now I've got uh, some emotional courage here myself. So this is brilliant. And thank you for uh, wanting to do this, this show with me today. Ah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. It's pretty exciting to be talking to somebody who is a kindred spirit in the, in the field, for sure. So great. It's so great. Now, I have been talking to uh, my audience and our future audience and saying, look, we are going to uh, direct this to teens, to, to young women, to young men, about how to lean in to the discomfort of that big emotion when you feel it and what to do about that because a lot of times our survival mode Trish our first response is to run run for the hills yeah um and we are we are talking today with your your wisdom your knowledge and what you've learned through your own experiences but we're also going to tap into um, a few people that are your favorites um, who talk about this and we're going to continue the conversation with their work and the work that you've done so what what is 
And how do you nurture emotional courage? Well, it's a loaded question, right? Because it's so many layers of how we nurture emotional courage. Obviously, it has to begin in the home. Right? It begins with parents. It begins with attachment, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, the understanding that we are wired for connection. And when a child does not learn from their attachment figure that they are safe, then their system eventually becomes dysregulated. So it's biological, it's psychological, it's emotional, and it's spiritual. So there, are, we, we often talk about the biopsychosocial spiritual model in counseling, which of course I'm a month or two away from finishing my master's in counseling. So it's one of those things where I just, you know, constantly am reminded about the multi layers of how do we nurture emotional courage? How do we grow it? How do we help kids to thrive? Right. And in so doing, help ourselves too. So, you know, you touched on daring greatly with um, Brene Brown's work, right? And that leaning into the discomfort that she talks about. It's really important uh, information. I think Brene Brown speaks to uh, every woman I know that I speak about this with, mostly women, are very passionate about her work. And I think that one of the reasons it is is because she's so incredibly authentic and honest and vulnerable as her, is her favorite word. And I love how she describes um, emotion of vulnerability. So she describes vulnerability in Brene Brown's words as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure, right? So let's just think about those three words for a minute. In uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. You're a teen and in a situation where life is, you know, throwing you a curveball as if you're going to want to lean into uncertainty, risk and emotional exposure, right? These are scary, scary topics. And so one that, you know, you and I, as women who feel safe and are, uh, have good connections, oh yeah, I can lean into the discomfort. I can have that vulnerable conversation with Lori. But I think it's really important for us to recognize how difficult that can be for so many people, not just teens, but anybody who's experienced trauma. Um, You know, you're asking them to lean into uncertainty when their whole world is uncertain, right? So from a biological standpoint, uncertainty and risk and exposure means physical hurt can mean emotional hurt, can mean sexual abuse, right? It can mean all of those layers. So why would I trust anybody, right? Well, and why would I lean into it? Why would I lean like into leaning that? into it means far away from that as possible. Yeah, like I'm I'm running. Leaning in means get me get me deeper into this relationship. Um, so how do we get there? Yeah. Right? So how do we get there with kids? And the only way you get there with any human being is through careful, loving, safe, trusting relationships. That's it. And and you don't have to have your doctorate your masters or anything else to know that that is common sense, right? So that's why it's so important that parents learn this stuff, but also teachers. And, and if we cannot, I always use the bucket analogy. If we cannot fill our own buckets, then we cannot nurture emotional courage. So it has to begin with us, right? It has to begin with myself, with you, Lori, which is the work you're doing. 
I can't support kids if I'm stressed out, if I feel threatened, if I'm worried about my marriage, I'm worried about my own children. My bucket begins to empty. And then I can't, I'm giving, 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 my bucket empties, I'm filling everybody else up, but I'm not filling my own bucket. So we, uh, we have to begin with ourselves in understanding how to nurture emotional courage. And it starts with mindful self-compassion. So your bucket for a, let's say someone's uh, 14. Right. And they're like, well, you know, what's a, what's a bucket? Right. So what's a bucket? A bucket is how I feel about myself, right? What is my self-worth? What is my view of self-worth? So, you know, let's talk a little bit about what you and I have discussed before, the difference between self-esteem and self-worth, right? Because these are really important topics. When I was a young parent in the 90s, I was having my kids and I was, uh, you know, the victim almost of the self-esteem movement. And it was all, um, you know, well-intentioned by psychologists saying, yes, we need to build children's self-esteem. And now here we are in the 2000s and we're beginning to realize that that was a, there was a failed scheme here because in doing, building someone's self-esteem, what we were teaching them is that you need to compare yourself. It, it's that sense of uh, a global evaluation of self-worth in Kirsten, Dr. Kirsten Neff's words, right? This global esteem of self-worth. So people look at me and uh, then I judge myself. I say, am I good or am I bad? You know, do I fit? Do I fit here? And, and so, so, as a so, kid, then, so yeah. sorry, but then what happens is, so your bucket is beliefs, it's values, Correct. it's self-perception. Yeah. And could your bucket be fear, um, like those kinds of things too? Yeah, your bucket's going to have all of your emotions in it. Your bucket is what makes you, is that whole biopsychosocial spiritual that I was talking about. It's all of those things within your bucket, right? And so you need that to be, you need to have, make sure you look after your body, right? That biological nourishment. You need the physical nourishment, right? But then you need the psychological nourishment. You need the relationships, the, 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 uh, the constant connection between, between you and other social beings, right? You need a spiritual connection, that sense of, you know, there's something other than me that, you know, I am part of consciousness, but I don't direct consciousness and I'm not the center of consciousness as, um, you know, I hear so much, you know, like Dr. Sam Harris, who's the Waking Up app, wrote the book Waking Up. Same kind of thing. He talks about consciousness and how when we believe we're at the center of consciousness, it can give us a false sense of, where we fit in the world. We're not at the center. We are literally part of it, always ever changing, right? Nothing is permanent, right? So and when we look at that, that's important to understand that. And so then, so then as we fill our bucket, right. as we put our bucket out there, mm -hmm. let's talk about the, the whole idea of what Kristen Neff is saying, where yeah. she says, and you said this is, this is because you mentioned, okay, once you're moving through this with your bucket, you go into this mindfulness. Right. And in that space of mindfulness, there is a space where self-esteem is here and there's a space and self-compassion is here as well. Now, interestingly, I, when I was doing research with her and you know, saw her TED talk, listened to her TED talk, I went, hold on. 
self-esteem isn't the same as self-compassion. <laughs> like I was like, wait a second. Yeah. I, I really didn't know that. I've always thought it was kind of the same. And then as she walks in and expresses the three core components, that was like, oh my gosh, I get it. Right. So just to kind of clarify a little bit more, because I don't know that I finished my thought on the difference between self-esteem and self-worth. Self-esteem is comparative, right? It's an external locus of control, right? We look at ourselves and how we fit in the world. And then we look at others and then we decide, oh, you know, I'm, I'm here in my grades. I'm here in my promotion. I'm here in my marriage. So I'm doing great. So I should feel good about myself versus Self-worth, or, and, and of course, self-compassion, as Dr. Neff talks about, is an internal or intrinsic locus of control. So I'm not comparing myself to others. I am looking within and I'm saying, I am a good human being because I am a human being. Uh, I, am, I am enough. So now you say that to somebody who... Um, <laughs> who their whole life have experienced trauma, uh, they don't believe you for a minute, okay? And in my work with my clients, uh, when I was counseling, you know, I was working with people that were, you know, in their 60s and 70s and who felt like they were nothing. They had no self-worth. And so for me to go, okay, well, let's, t- let's practice talking. I am enough. I am a good person. I am a good friend. Can we, we talk about who you are and build your senses. It's so many layers to get to there. That takes patience. And so when I talk to my students about it, they say, oh, that feels narcissistic, Miss Wagner. It feels like I'm being cocky. And, and I said, yeah, well, of course, because it's new, right? It's new neural circuitry that you're trying to lay down. And so as Dr. Neff says, there are three pieces, right? There's the self-kindness, right? That self-compassion, practicing being kind to yourself, Instead of beating yourself up like we all do, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I say that? I can't right. believe I did that. Right. Oh my God, what an awful parent I am. I yelled at my kid. We yeah. all do it. Everybody does it. But when yeah. we do it regularly, then she, Dr. Neff, reminds us, step back and say, would I say that to my best friend? Step right. back, right? So that, how do you step back, right, when you're doing it? That requires practice with through mindfulness, right? So that's why you have to practice mindfulness, just like you have to practice tennis or practice soccer. It's thousands of hours of taking the time to try to be present in the moment, to come to your breath. You don't have to close your eyes and go home, right? It's about, okay, stop, recognize what's going on here, observe expand my awareness to my body and to the people around me, breathe, right? And then respond. So those that, that is so important that that's a, that biological piece is crucial, right? So self-kindness doesn't just come like that. You have to be able to slow down, come to your breath, be mindful. That's why she says that's the second piece of self-compassion practice. And then the third piece that Dr. Neff talks about is common humanity, right? So that piece of... You are not alone. In the um, Cracked Up documentary, I was listening to Dr. Bessel van der Kolk today in, the, in a Zoom call, and he was talking about you're never alone because Daryl Hammond, the SNL 
uh, actor who's the feature in the film cracked up was saying, oh, you know, you don't need to hear from me. I'm just this broken dude. Let's listen to the doctors because the doctors know. And Bessel van der Kolk just said to him, no, Daryl. He says, I'm nothing special. He said, uh, you don't need a PhD to know what pain feels like. And you don't need a PhD to understand that you just need connection and love and, and for yourself as well as others, you know. But you can't, going back to my bucket analogy, you can't begin to give love to others and have healthy relationships until you know how to do that for yourself, right? Which then is the self-compassion. Correct. So it has to, it always comes back to that. Everything I've done in my addiction work with people, every single time it came back to that. So what is that about? In each of the cases, when you talk to trauma survivors, they will say to you, I just needed to know somebody cared. I just needed to know somebody wanted to hear my story. Somebody wanted to listen to me and not necessarily tell me what to do, but just hold space for me. Just be there. I just wanted to be seen. I just wanted to be seen. Beautiful, right? And tell my story. Daryl Hammond says in the film, his biggest fear was that he would die and nobody would know what he lived through as a child the horrific abuse. He's like, that was, that was more frightening for me than the actual abuse that happened is that I would never be seen, that I would never be heard. And his, his illustrious, illustrious long career in SNL, um, nobody ever really knew that watching him. They just knew he's a funny guy. So it's interesting, right? Self, and then this is interesting that you say that because now let's talk about this self the critical point of us, because mm-hmm. in this, mm-hmm. she talks and says, hey, the self-criticism undermines our motivation of because course. It, it's a threat. Mm-hmm. So explain this to someone who's 14 years old, 13 years old, 11 years old, and they're saying, I, I have a learning difference. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't, I'm, I'm unable to do math. I'm unable to... I'm stupid, actually, is what I'm stupid. They're not going to say I'm unable to do math. I'm I'm such an idiot. Why can't I do math? Everybody else can do math, right? So in Dr. Ness works, you are both the attacker and the attacked. I just thought that was brilliant when she said that. I'm like, I I just snapped back. I was like, oh, right? Yeah. You're, You're attacking yourself. And at the same time, you feel attacked for not being able to understand math, right? And so how do you step out of that? Well, this is primal, right? This is a primal reaction. So what I teach my students is this is your brain doing this to you. This is not who you are. This is your brain. So let's talk about what's happening in your brain. Your monkey brain, or some people call it your reptilian brain, is feeling attacked. So your prefrontal cortex or your rational brain goes offline. You cannot react rationally when you feel attacked. So how do I then stop feeling attacked? And it has again to do with biology. You must come to your breath. There is no other option in those first few seconds, right? And how do you know to come to your breath? My clients would say to me, or my students would say to me, I don't know how to come to my breath. I'm just losing my shit, right? I don't know how to come to my breath. And it's like, that's where the practice comes in. It's a practice. It is not going to happen overnight. Oh, I meditated. You know, right now, my students are doing a 30-day meditation challenge with me, right? Well, 
it's not going to happen after 30 days either, right? It takes a long time. And, you know, if you've read any um, research on habits, they say 10,000 hours, right? 10,000 hours of practice to become good at something. And what do I mean by good? It's not about doing med- meditation or mindfulness well. It's not that. It's about forming new neural connections in the brain. The more you do it, the more that pathway or let's say that highway gets traveled. And the more the highway gets traveled, the more when that moment comes where I'm in my math class and I feel like um, my teacher's looking at me like I'm an idiot and they're asking me a question and I feel like I'm being hijacked. Yeah. Like, oh my God, there goes my brain. I, they call it the amygdala hijack, right? Yeah. Then I can, nobody has to know. Just breathe. Feel your body. Come to your body. Feel what's going on in your body. Is my stomach clenching? Is my heart pounding? All of those things are a biological reaction to you feeling attacked. So then the first thing you do, come to your breath. Once you expand your awareness, then you go to your body, right? Oh, I can feel it here. I can feel it there. Okay, a few more deep breaths, right? A few more deep breaths. And then now the self-kindness comes in. I know this is hard. I know I can do this. Respond. You know what, Mrs. Blank? I actually don't understand that question. I wonder if you could explain it to me, right? But we don't learn those skills. We don't learn those skills. Nobody teaches us those skills. And when I was doing my practicum in my master's, I was meeting people in their 60s and 70s that looked at me and said, oh my gosh, like I've never even heard of anything like that. And, you know, I think Dr. Brackett, Dr. Mark Brackett uses the ruler approach. He talks about the ruler approach. I'm sure you read about it. I did. Okay, so the ruler is, and I like it, but I actually, I actually like the one I just gave you better, so I'll give you both acronyms. Okay. So the ruler approach is recognize your emotion first, recognize what you're feeling, and we'll talk about that in a minute, Dr. Brackett's work, because it's really important in a proactive approach rather than when children are actually traumatized, right, or people are traumatized. Understand what the emotion means, right? What is, that? What is it telling me? Label it, I feel blank right? And express the emotion. Uh, I am feeling it, say it out loud, and then regulate, self-regulate. But what the, the acronym I was sharing with you is an acronym we, that is called SOBER, S-O-B-E-R. And it comes from the Mindfulness-Based Relapse Program, which Dr. Neff's work has been adapted from, okay? So Dr. Neff took mindfulness-based self-compassion from the original work of mindfulness-based relapse, right? So originally came in, um, the work came through trying to help people suffering from addiction. And then she looked at it from a more global perspective and said, let's do, you know, and I don't, I can't speak exactly for her because I don't know exactly how that research happened, but I just understand that she became very passionate about helping her own students at university and, and then doing work with people in general, not just people that are suffering from trauma. And so the sober is stop, which is what I was doing. Yep. Stop. Observe what's going on in my body. Breathe. Breathe. Expand your awareness to the people around you. What's actually happening is at math class and then respond. Right. So sober. And I teach my students it and they say it's very, very helpful to them. Uh, But again, it has to be practiced or else you, you don't know how to reach into the toolbox. Right. Nice, well, nice to have all these tools. You know, it, there might be a, a, a teenager out there or someone out there who 
writes it on a sticky note and just puts it in their, in their book, you know? Or- yeah, but it's going to help. That's the thing. So that's what I want to share with you is like um, the mindfulness-based program that uh, Dr. Neff has that I know you ordered. Yes. It's become the cornerstone of what I want to do in my coursework now with my students because it's brilliant. It's a workbook. You have to work through it. So I started it with my students too late because I only got it in November and then I had, didn't have enough time in the semester to do it. I was doing other coursework with them. And one of my students said, you know, I, yeah, I liked it, madame. It pushed me a little bit. It was a little bit uncomfortable, but you know what? I went on a holiday after that class and I saw it in the airport and I felt like, wow, somebody's calling out to me. So she bought it. And she did the whole program. She kept texting me, even though she wasn't in my class, telling me about it. And then she, then she said to me, I finished it. I love it. I'm so glad that you started us on it, even though I didn't like it at first. She said, I didn't like it. And it was uncomfortable. And a bunch of my students told me it was uncomfortable work. And then she uh, finishes the whole program, does a few other books that we discussed. And she wrote a reflection for me just not too long ago that I shared. I'm happy to share with you too. She said I can share it with anybody. So I can share it with you. You can put it on your website. Yeah. Of, of a teenager's perspective on doing mindful self-compassion work and how she feels it's changed her life. Well, and, and what I find interesting is that I just said um, to you, oh, well, someone could take that sober and they could put it, you know, in their binder. And you said, no, no. Because I'm trying to think, like, I try to think, oh, yeah, in order to to develop the habit, you've got to have a cue. But, you know, the reality is, like you're saying, when you can sit there and then your teacher calls on you and you're just like, I don't know, I don't don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know and I, I don't get it or I have to go to the bathroom or... Uh, you know, anger, this teacher hates me, they're picking on me, all of those things, right? These are all natural responses to um, when we feel uncomfortable and we don't have the skills for how to deal with being uncomfortable. Because, you know, like Bre- Brene Brown talks about, they, they, there's, there's nowhere else to live but in the big, ugly, open, uncomfortable world that we have, you know? Absolutely. And, and here's a question for you while we're still talking on, on, on Dr. Neff. Um, we, we said here in, in the notes, I say, uh, she said, we believe we need our self-criticism to motivate ourselves. If we are too kind, then we will be self-indulgent or lazy. We will actually think if we're too kind to ourselves. Yeah. So oh, I love we're, that. Like we're treating ourselves like a, like a, you know, I'm, we're on, I'm the best thing ever. Like, yes. well, where did you, would, and then we immediately begin to, you know, uh, criticize yourself and go, where did you, you're not that amazing person. Like, what's your problem, Lori? You're, you, you say you're amazing. You say you're solid. You know what? You're not, you're not, you're not. So, so again, like where is for, for the person who is developing a skill, is it as simple to say the awareness Absolutely. About your thoughts. That's the beginning, right? That's the beginning, becoming aware. And really, that's what meditation and mindfulness is about. It's about practicing being with what is in the present moment. That's it. It's not about judging it. It's just about being with what is. Byron Katie does work um, called, she has an amazing piece of work called The Work. Um, And she talks about loving what is. 
So whenever we fight against what is, we are going to um, create pain because what is, is, right? We can't change the reality of what is, but it's how we look at what is and become aware and then be able to regulate our own selves. It can help. Like think about the child again, going back to the child living in an abusive home. Right? It can't just, they can't choose to leave the house. It is what it is. You know, they can choose to get control over their own body and then maybe get the courage to be able to tell a trusted, caring adult this is what they're living in. Sure. Right, but how many kids live in silence their whole lives through abuse? Because I was talking to um, uh, three, four, four people in the last, just before COVID happened, just before spring break. And, and each of these people, these, like, Trish, these are women. We're talking like 40s. There's one that was in her 60s and one that was in her 30s. She's, yeah. And they all said at the different times to me, mm-hmm. you know what? There was sexual abuse in our family. And we weren't allowed to talk about it. Nobody talked about it. That's right. We need to make sure as educators uh, and counselors that kids know about um, the health Lines, the kids' help phones. They, we need to sit, create safe spaces in our classroom so that they know that you care deeply about who they are. We need to continually ask the questions, how are you, and be ready to hold space to find out how they really are. So this could lead us right into Dr. Brackett's work in the classroom, right? So the mood meter that you know he's introduced is being introduced now in the elementary schools. Right. And it's an, it, they've been using these zones of regulation and mood meters, these kinds of approaches for some time now. And it's exceptionally beautiful, powerful, important work that he is doing because and, and that teachers are doing through his work. Because if we can, if we can begin to teach kids how to label their emotions and to understand what normal is that adults that love you are actually not supposed to hurt you. When you're a child, you don't know any different, right? So if you are attached to a person who hurts you, then all you get from that as a child is there must be something wrong with me, right? Because that's my caregiver. That's the person that gave birth to me. So I'm supposed to be attached to them. And yet I, this is what they do to me. So that, that those key pieces outside of the, the home, if that's where the abuse is taking place, has to be in the community. And so we need to begin by teaching kids that emotions matter, by teaching adults how important it is to recognize your own emotions, mm. by making sure that teachers have the proper oh my goodness, the proper pedagogy and the proper training to be trauma-informed because we are just beginning this journey of being trauma-informed in education. And I'm telling you, we have a long way to go, obviously. But if we care enough about kids, we can help them from the very beginning that they enter into the preschools and into kindergartens about learning how to recognize emotion, talk about what healthy emotion it means feeling all emotions and then learning how to express all of those emotions and learning how to be self-aware, like you said, and uh, practice mindfulness. And they're doing it now with small children. And the earlier, the better, as we know. 
because we're hardwired for connection, right? And I remember, uh, you know, one of the things that I remember Dr. Neff talking about is that, you know, we self-criticize, we beat ourselves up all the time. Right? Yeah. Um, and then she talked about, you know, we think then, like you said, that that'll put us in our right place. And then maybe we will do better next time. Right. right. And an idiot, right. why didn't I get that math question? Right. And if I beat myself up. Maybe that'll motivate me to do better at work. And yeah. you just imperfectionists all the time. And perfectionism is just the double-sided cone of, sh- of shame is what uh, Brene Brown talks about. And, and what we know from the research that Dr. Neff talked about was that that actually is the opposite that happens. It actually leads to increased anxiety, increased depression, right? And so she talked about the importance of uh, looking towards the mammalian brain or what I call the prefrontal cortex. And so developing the connection between our reptilian brain and our mammalian brain or our monkey brain or our amygdala to use proper biological terms, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex to strengthen those neural connections is done through mindfulness and meditation and healthy relationships and learning to come to your breath and yoga and all of the other biological needs we need. Good sleep regimen, right? Eating well, but relationships, social relationships, all of these things are key in bringing us to a place where we can engage our prefrontal cortex, engage that mammalian brain and say, hmm, how do I bring my system back online? Because it's uh-huh. biological, right? Coming back right, to that. Because there's a cortisol response. And right. when so, there's that cortisol response, then exactly. your body responds with adrenaline, right? Exactly. And then you're like all, and if it's too much... Mm-hmm. then the body shuts down. Yeah, and, and you actually made a point there. The body shuts down too. So we've been talking about the brain, but your CNS or your central nervous system is dysregulated when you are in a situation where you feel like you're being attacked, right? And, and then you're attacking yourself if you're saying self-loathing things. So now you got a double whammy, right? Um, so the, the parasympathetic nervous system is the part of our, our nervous system that releases the oxytocin, releases the serotonin, right? tells us to go, and when we breathe, that's what we do. We activate the parasympathetic nervous system when we deep breathe. When we hyperventilate like this, that's the sympathetic nervous system, and it's releasing more and more cortisol and more and more adrenaline or noradrenaline, as it's also referred to. So you, in order to decrease the sympathetic nervous response and increase the parasympathetic nervous response, which is the nervous response that says, breathe and calm down you have to breathe like it's literally you have to breathe you have to deep breathe you have to slow your breath down right and you need uh oftentimes when kids are having panic attacks for example with some of my students i would ask them tell me what is best for you when you're having a panic attack how can i support you because for some of my students they want me to hold their hands right just hold their hands and breathe with them others don't want to be touched but they would like me to just try to breathe with them Others want to, for me to be able to let them step out into the hallway and just stand beside them, right? And, and so these are important things because, again, teachers are not taught this, by the way, right? Nobody's no, taught this. No, this is the thing, right? And so, and here's, no and here's the thing. I, I, you know, I, I go back to my own childhood at, at, uh, as you're talking about this and, you know, when, when we were at school, right? Yeah. But, you know, you, you've got kids now who, who are in class they don't feel like they measure up. They're feeling like they fall short and their pulse is racing all the time, six hours a day. This mm-hmm. self-talk, the, 
the the place that's what's happening in their body, in their mind, and in their spirit. You know, there's a level of grief that I think, you know, as a teenager, as a young child, that they aren't really connected to because, right? And we're just, they're disconnected from their very selves, right, Lori? Like they're disconnected from their own bodies. So this is what goes back again to um, Dr. Neff's work is understanding that it begins here, right? It begins inside. It begins with nurturing that emotional courage within us. But we can't do that if we don't have the skills for first of all, knowing what emotions are, right? Like recognizing emotions from a very young age. Um, I, I think it was mad, sad, glad in Brene's words were the three words that came from her, uh, her research on the, the three emotions most people know, mad, sad, glad, right? And, and it's like there are over 2,000 words in the English language, that, to, to quote Dr. Brackett, that um, recognize emotion. But how many can you name? Like, can you say to me, you're feeling despair? So what I regularly do now um, is I survey my students weekly on a Google survey, so it's anonymous, with the mood meter in it. And then I ask them to answer it right below in a survey. Tell me, what color are you feeling? And what's the word that describes how you're feeling today? And then when, when everybody's responded to the survey, now I pull it up so the whole class can see it on my Zoom call, unfortunately, for now. But in real life, I do it in the classroom. And... And I show them what everybody's saying. Well, what, what do you think happens as you start to show all of these? Majority of my kids last week were in the green. Mm. Okay. And I'm going to be doing it again this Friday. I do well-being Fridays with them. So majority were in the green, but there's a couple in the red. And there were two kids who had uh, multicolors across. So they, they, said, they said like five different adjectives from four different quadrants of Dr. Brackett's mood meter. And, you know, we haven't talked about the mood meter yet in your show. I don't know if you want me to describe it. Uh, I, I think that's a great idea because um, I, I do have it on my Instagram and I've got it on Facebook and I'm putting it on the website for us so that yeah. when you can click on the podcast, you can see the read more button. And all of this stuff is going to be including the mood meter. Right. And I would like to say about the mood meter that, you know, this, when I bought it, it, it said ages four and up like people can do this you can to teach your child and what I like about this is it's not me directed like my daughter is 10 and a half and this is a tough time for everybody right so when you you can connect to this as a family up to six people and you really don't need to talk about it per se because this app gives you all of the language. Like she was looking through the words today and said, what, how do you pronounce? And she couldn't. Isn't that beautiful? Well, right. And and then I explained what sullen was. Yes. Isn't that great? She didn't know what sullen was. And it's like, it's it's a really great, it's a gateway in. Well, absolutely. Emotional intelligence. So please explain to us. Yeah what this mood meter is. Okay, so the mood meter, as Dr. Brackett put together, Yale Center for uh, Emotional Intelligence is his work, education. It's all to work with educators, his, his work, um, is based on a horizontal and a vertical axis. And so access. So I'm sure you'll have that in your, um, there's a short little video that you can watch that 
I'm sure you'll post there. That's great. What is the mood meter? Yes. So it's excellent. You can find it on his website. But basically, the, the horizontal axis is pleasantness. So unpleasant to pleasant emotions. And then the vertical axis is energy, low to high energy. When we're in the low energy part of the quadrant, we're in either blue, which is low pleasantness and low energy, or we're in the green, which is high pleasantness and low energy. So for example, in green, we'd find calm. And in blue, we may find depressed. Okay. Then going up, the energy access, you're going to go to high energy. And then high energy in the top left, you're going to have red. And red is that area where you have high energy and low pleasantness. So this is where anger stems from, but there are so many beautiful words in there. Rage would be much higher in the top left corner to discomfort and unease would be in the bottom corner, right? Closer to pleasantness, right? Because it's a spectrum. And then in the top right would be your yellow and on yellow, you have high energy and high pleasantness. So all of those things then help us to understand where am I feeling on the spectrum of energy and on the spectrum of pleasantness? And just being able to recognize how you feel and then label it begins then to allow yourself to wonder, okay, what is my goal? What do I want to do today? And how he talks about how goals and emotions are tied together. So for example, today, I need to be in probably yellow and so do you, right? Because we're talking about really important things that need our energy. And we need to also be instilling hope in your listeners, right? It's not all doom and gloom, that we have skills and we can learn these skills right from the age of three and four years of age, even younger, uh, to teach your children where their anger sits. My girlfriend has a three-year-old and I remember her saying to me not too long ago, he was having a little bit of a fit. And the first thing she said to him is, where do you feel it? Where do you feel it, buddy? Where are you feeling that in your body? And I thought, isn't that beautiful that parents are doing these kinds of things now? I didn't know how to say that to my kids. I didn't know to, tell my, to ask my children to tell me where they felt their anger or their joy or their fear, right? Yeah. So it's, these are and, huge life skills, right? And I think something that you, that's really important, and I wrote it down, is that emotions are a spectrum. Oh, huge. Yeah. And so when you're yeah. feeling, yeah. so this is really key and, and, and weigh in here because it's like this. How are you feeling? I'm angry. Okay. So that's one. It's like, it's just one dimensional. It just drops. Mm-hmm. Whereas what this does is it's okay. So, but like angry and where though with, and what I like about the app is that it'll say angry or mad and it'll give you three other words attached to that, mm-hmm. which is so cool because yeah. you're not in one place. Right. You're in you multiple language. places. Yeah, it gives you the language. And what we've learned uh, through, obviously, uh, psychotherapy is one of the first steps in cognitive behavioral, develop, uh, cog- cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most widely evidentially based therapeutic approach in counseling, is that you need to be able to name what's happening. You need to be able to name it. Right. And so how do we do that when we don't have the the words? Right. So we need to name our thoughts. What am I actually saying to myself? What is the behavior that's connected to that? Do I want to continue to yell at my wife every time I get angry or yell at my mom every time I'm angry? 
right? And what can I do to change my thoughts? Well, the thoughts are connected to emotion, right? That's the basic, you know, understanding. And you know what else too, is that there's an energy and a pleasantness. So, Mm -hmm. so it's saying, are you feeling low energy or high energy? Right. And then is it pleasant or unpleasant? And I love that because yeah, the spectrum, yeah. Again, it's a, just another level of of moving us through that. Mm. Uh, as Brene Brown says, you're you're moving through the middle. Right. You're you're wading right dead through because that is the the path of growth. That yeah. is the path yeah. of without it. Oh, of awakening. Now, let's talk about Dr. Kessler, um, his work um, in finding meaning in the sixth stage of grief. You know, it was interesting. I, I haven't studied him too much except for listening to his pod talk um, with uh, Brene Brown on her new series, Unlocking Us. Um, but I just thought it was so beautiful because he talked about the five stages of grief and then he talked about the uh, the sixth stage that now her family posthumously is, is allowed him to add, which is finding meaning. And I thought that was really beautiful. Um, understanding that through grief, we have various stages that it's, uh, again, it's up and down. It's like a wave of moving through grief. But, um, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on the field of his work, but I just think it's really important to recognize that we are collectively grieving as a world right now. Right. And he said something that was really profound in the podcast talk with Dr. Brown. And he said, we need to collectively mourn the loss of the world as we knew it. He said he is absolutely convinced that post pandemic, we will talk about to our children and our children will talk about to their children. Well, before the first pandemic, right, just like the 1918 flu. Right. And, and so how do we find meaning uh, in such collective suffering? And I mean, we just have to think about different parts of the world that have obviously been hit much harder than us. But it, it again comes back to emotions too, Lori. I think, you know, I think about Dr. Susan David's work that I talked to you about, the um, Harvard medical psychologist. She has an amazing yeah. TED talk that kind of inspired our talk today called The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And in that TED Talk, she says so many important things. But one of the things that really resonated for my students after we debriefed it in small breakout groups as well as the class was emotions are data, not directives. Right? I love that. Emotions are data, not directives. So we need to be able to label those emotions. We need to be able to notice those emotions, be able to breathe through when we're in difficult situations. But we need to also recognize that we do not have to follow what our emotions are telling us. So that's kind of similar to what Dr. Brackett says, which is layering them with your goals, right? Understand. Well, and, it's also, and it's also similar to what um, David Kessler does say. And the, the, the one thing, um, I listened to that same podcast, but the, the one thing that he said in my research was, he said, you know, we live in a world that doesn't allow that doesn't want to allow you to experience grief. Correct. And we, we live in a society that wants you to just get over it. Right. And move on. And, and I'm saying 
to people. And I said in, in my IGTV announcement today, I said, look, there are many of you listening who have loss in your family because your parents are divorced. Right. Or maybe you're being bullied and you've lost your friend group. You lost faith in people. Or maybe, you know, your relationship has just fallen apart and you don't know what to do now. There's a loss. And maybe you've lost yourself. Correct. And so he walks that through. But again, it goes all the way back to Dr. Neff's work where you're saying this is all about your bucket and what is in that bucket and how you are filling it and how you are learning to actually face into the self-compassion, and then, of course, facing into the emotion. Yes, and facing those uncomfortable discussions that we talked about as well, right? It's it's quite dynamic. It is, and it's it's spectacular. Like, I love it for so many, so for so many things, but I think that, you know, we, we, there's so many layers to this conversation. We can start with just understanding what are the basic skills that we need. We could spend... You know, I could spend, you could do an entire PhD on just mindfulness. Um, Many people have, Uh, you know, it comes back again to what I was saying earlier. And that is that the research show is very, very clear, right? If we practice mindful self-compassion, depression goes down, anxiety goes down, uh, increased self-efficacy goes up, our confidence goes up, um, we have better interpersonal relationships. Um, it is, it's amazing, the, the, the self-loathing goes down, of course. And so we can create, like little by little, we can create these pockets in society where people are beginning to have these conversations. Like it's not unusual now to have a conversation like we're having. Yeah. You know, and yet 10 years ago, I don't even think I knew the term mindful self-compassion 10 no. years ago. No, I didn't. So to me, that, that leaves me hopeful, Lori. It brings me a lot of hope to know that, you know, you're doing a pod talk, uh, that you're so passionate about this, that I'm doing it in my classroom, that I have girlfriends that are teaching it to their children and are life coaches and are doing it with their, with their clients. Yeah. Uh, I have girlfriends that are vice principals in inner city Surrey who are regularly um, working one-on-one with families and with children that are tra- traumatized, trying to support them. You know, it's just, it brings me a lot of hope that we are so many more people are so much more trauma-informed. What do we give someone at this, this key moment here with the few things that we've talked about just scratching the surface? Well, um, I don't know. First, um, lean into fear. Ah, lean into fear. Um, I have a saying on my desk that says, do one thing every day that scares you. Do one thing every day that scares you. Because if you don't, you're not facing life head on, right? And, and so, like you said, we are guaranteed uncertainty. Guaranteed. So we cannot, that is the definition of vulnerability. We cannot live a wholehearted life, as Brene Brown says, unless we embrace uncertainty, unless we lean into risk, and unless we have emotional exposure right? And so how do we do that? We have to build our emotional resilience. We have to build that. And how do we do that? By leaning in, 
right? There is no way but through, like she says. So to me, that would be one of them, right? Growing empathy within us. We'll grow that empathy within us by practicing mindful self-compassion, by reminding ourselves of common humanity, that we're never alone, that we know that uncertainty is a guarantee. And and through this pandemic, it is even more so. But in everyday life, even if there was no pandemic, we're guaranteed of that, right? We, you know, I like to assume that um, one of my one of my beliefs is I assume that people people's intentions are kind, you know, and and I mean I could spend a whole hour talking about perception in our lenses and how so often people jump to they said this when really if you back recorded the conversation and listened to it again they didn't say it that way with that intention and yet it's interpreted as a negative statement to the person who felt it right and so we can't when we're so hard on ourselves we can't hear people right uh, we can't actually hear their good intentions we are so hard on ourselves that when people say something we think it's like oh you're wearing that dress honey oh are you gonna put your hair that way and right away we hear criticism in a statement that maybe had nothing to do with that. Maybe the person who said that to you really, really loved the other dress because green was their favorite color and nothing to do with what it looks like on you, but it's just green's their favorite color and green, the green dress you wear makes them happy because they like green, but we don't, we don't see that, right? We get so wrapped up in our own fear that we immediately believe we're being attacked. So learning to find those, you know, the, the, the hope and the trust in people that it was funny today. We had a, a student Sam talk, a student in the mind talk where my kids taught the class. And so it was a zoom call. There were eight of us in the class and she was talking about vulnerability and, you know, will you lean into vulnerability and how, how might that look in your life? And, and one of the boys said, you know, I, I can see that I really need to work on, on vulnerability in my life. But he says, you know, I think it's going to take me some time, right? Uh, you know, I don't really, I don't really like the feel of it. And I believe that you have to trust the person before you can be vulnerable with them. And, and all the rest of the kids going, yeah, you need to have, you need to trust the person before you can be vulnerable with them. And then I just kind of quietly said, yeah. It's interesting though, right? Because if we wait for trust, if we wait for the perfect moment when we feel like we can trust the person and then we're vulnerable, we may have lost the opportunity to actually forge a good relationship with that person, a real authentic relationship, right? So you, you need to be brave, right? You need to sometimes just put yourself out there like I'm doing with you today. I'm not an expert in this field by any means. You know, I've learned it just like you've learned it uh, working hard and reading and being passionate about people and about life and about connections and about kids. But at the end of the day, that's all that matters is just being brave and taking a risk. And like Brene Brown says, stepping into the arena. I think you have a quote that you were going to finish with today. I am. That's beautiful because it's exactly what it is. And so when I listened to that 17-year-old boy say that in my class today, I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, I get what you're saying. But what do you think about this? And he, and he said, after I said that, he said, yeah, I guess I kind of see your point, right? But it's scary, right? So be brave. Being brave and being brave with, I think the, the tone of this conversation is uh, 
the, just the simple awareness mm-hmm. of the power of an emotion, no matter how big it is, we want to remember that it's a spectrum, that it has a name, that it has a, that it's not just anger. It's, there's other words in there. And all emotions are acceptable. That they're all, all acceptable. And that they're, they're not directives, but they're just information, right? And when someone says that is not acceptable, you're, um, what you're doing is not acceptable, your emotion's not acceptable, really, and this is my opinion, being a mother of multiple children, um, I've said that before. Sure, so have I. And we talked about it after. And I'm saying to my kids, it's not that I am saying you should never feel hatred. But if you have an emotion that's locked in, that's where there's danger. Because you can act out of that and you aren't able to connect to your body. You're not able to free flow what what sorrow might be saying to you or what sadness might be trying to release. And so when we experience this powerful energy and um, overwhelming sense within our bodies and it comes out our mouth and it, it acts out through our bodies, it's, we've got to remember that there's a spectrum to it and that we can go back to that, label it and ask ourselves, why was I feeling like that? Mm-hmm. Connecting in is, is really one of the steps. Now, the first one that I heard you say is to breathe mm-hmm. and to pull yourself back to ground, to center. Is there anything else that I've said there that needs clarification or, or that you would want to expand on briefly? I just want to make sure that people remember that this, we need to be kind to ourselves and be patient. Uh, this, is, this is new for a lot of us, you know, yeah. and, and just to take the time to recognize that it, it's a, it takes practice, right? It is a practice. Life is a practice. And, and so, as I said before, just to be brave, to lean in, to not be, um, to, to not shy away from those uncomfortable conversations and to be patient with ourselves when we make mistakes and to recognize that self-loathing actually creates the opposite, right? The attacker and the attackee. That was really powerful for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, we all make mistakes as parents. I've done the same thing to my kids. You know, that's not okay for you to talk to me like that. That's not, you know, you just scream at me or whatever. But the, the lesson that to be learned is to learn, teach children at a young age uh, how to label their emotions. And then eventually you can get to the point where Dr. Brackett work, Dr. Brackett's work leads, which is learning uh, emotional intelligence, self-regulation, awareness, right? Sense of self, sense of others, right? That's what emotional intelligence is, is the ability to have social relationships, to be self-aware, to know how to self-regulate and to read others' emotions, right? And unfortunately in this world of technology, it makes it much more difficult for young people because they don't, really always know right. what people are actually feeling. Well, right. And we've talked about that. We've talked about that at the, and the, in the teens and technology conversation that we had. But, you know, there's, uh, what I'm seeing here is 
what we've done in this first episode is sort of pull everything out of the box. Yeah. (laughs) And then let's work together to start to put things back in the box and take some time to, like you said, examine perception and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and what our lens actually is and I how really helpful too to talk about shame and perfectionism too because these are two big things that you know many of us suffer from uh, shame and perfectionism for sure yeah I see it a lot in my classroom yeah um, and yeah and I mean belonging love connection well it's um, just going to yeah. go on and on right and 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 yeah. so our listeners can know that we will keep this conversation going. This is a valuable conversation. This is an important conversation. And and I don't want to end this conversation in the sense that uh, we we are going to come back to this and we're going to pick up one of those things that you said just a moment ago and we will decide what we're going to talk about and then we're going to talk about it and we're going to drill down really, really deep on it because, um, you know, it all begins with this mindful compassion. It's mindful and it's it extending grace to yourself. Yeah. And yeah. remember something that I think is really important. And as I read this from um, uh, Daring Greatly uh, by Brene Brown, you know, she's, it's so powerful to me because when I read this, I went, oh, and I immediately had this vision. I immediately had this vision of, of myself stepping into this ancient arena. Mm -hmm. And I immediately could hear these battles going on of the clash, the clanging of swords. And and I knew there were horses that come running through this place and, and there's blood in the earth and you can see it. You know, if you're, if you're visual, get the vision that this arena people have gone before. People went before you, Trish. They went before me. They fought this battle about what it means to be human, the power of connection, and what it means to love yourself. And she connects to this. And she says, this is a, um, the phrase daring greatly is from Theodore Roosevelt's speech, uh, Citizenship in a Republic. And it's often referred to as men in, in the arena. And as women, um, we know that we can say the woman in the arena, right? Of course. It's for everyone. Uh, but, but for this particular writing, this is what it says. It says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end of the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst If he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. Beautiful. I love that. Isn't that? She sees that in her Netflix special too there for your listeners. 
uh, that Netflix special is, is I think, the tour after she wrote Daring Greatly, but it's just so beautiful, right? So much of what she says is the kind of isms that we can all live by. So I'm very eternally grateful to her for her oh, work. Me too. Me too. Let me tell you. It's, it's beautiful. And, and it gives you the sense that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're daring. And each one of us in our lifetimes, if you're 12 and you're listening, if you're 18, each one of us in our life has to dare and has to face fear, has to take the risk and has to say, I'm going to go. I'm going. And yeah, and there, yeah, for sure. And without any guarantees, there are no guarantees. No certainty. Mm, Nope. Thank you so much for coming on today. This has been a pleasure. I've been waiting for this. And I'm waiting for this because I get this sense of urgency about raising the conversation and keeping this conversation going. So thank you so much. I know you're coming back and we have a lot more to say. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Lori. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure having the conversation with you.